As we open here in uh, Luke 24, Jesus has been mocked. He's been abused. He's been scourged. He's been crucified. They recognize he's been pronounced dead. He's been pierced after he was dead. A spear through his side. He's been prepared for burial, and he's been buried. This is the third day after when we open up. I'm going to be primarily reading from the ESV. Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise on the third day. They remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Obviously, very obvious to us, Matthew 12:40 has been fulfilled. Those had asked a sign of Jesus, and he said, I'm not going to give you a sign except for the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights uh, in the belly of the great fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A time there. This is one of several places recorded, but one of these is sufficient to prove. The following, what's going on here? Nobody really fully understands at this time. Continuing our reading in verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. I don't have a map for this because we're not really sure where that was. What is modern Emmaus is obviously not this because it doesn't fit the descriptions. Uh, but about seven miles away, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, that's the ESV. The New King James says, conversed and reasoned. King James says, communed and reasoned. The ASV says, communed and questioned. What they were doing was talking these things over and trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, remember, this is fresh. We see the end of the puzzle because we got the rest of the book. We're looking back on it, but then it's fresh. What's, what's happening? They're trying to understand it as they're talking. <clears throat> Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He's going to, at a point, show who he is by showing his damaged body. Here's my holes. See my hands. See my feet. See the hole in my side. But at this time, he doesn't want them to know. Right now, they are not allowed to see who he is. 
And he said to them, verse 17, what is the conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. This is astounding to them. Notice what made them sad. Listen to their dashed hopes. One of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that it was he, it was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third days since these things have happened. Notice in their, in their speech, the past tense, it was. We had hoped. Like our hopes are dashed. Like we, we thought this, but something went wrong with it. Uh, to their mindset, death was defeat. Here his enemies had got a hold of him. They had killed him. He was defeated. Therefore, something wasn't right there. But, but he had been a prophet. They had all these things that had given them hope. But that's past now. They had lost that hope because of this. And apparently what they had missed, what many had missed, that Jesus didn't get killed he had given up his life. Remember when we talked about the thief on the cross, the thief recognized. There were, there were things there that showed. And Jesus had said, no one takes my life, I give it. They recognized his greatness and they're confounded by his dying. Moreover, verse 22, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. What do we do with this? What do they do with it? It's easy to see why they're confused. See this one who's mighty in word and deed among the people. He had done miracles that were undeniable. Even his enemies didn't say, these are fake. These are real. Um, here is one who had raised the dead. How can, the, how can man defeat him? That's why they're confused. It just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense to the man's mind. Um, and his deaths had dashed their hopes. And that's why they're sad. And they had known him up close and personal, disciples. They were disciples who had went with him just like the apostles from day one and stayed with them. All we know was they knew him, and they can't figure out why and what happened. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, now think about this, all the prophets, He's going to take some time explaining to them because throughout the Old Testament, we have prophecies, things talked about in it. And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, the scriptures they would have had at this time was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. None of it had been written. But he takes the time to talk to them. This would not have been possible had they not been familiar with scripture. These are Jews. Jews 
knew what the scripture said. That didn't mean they always understood what it meant. Okay? So as he's going through this and he can reference things, they will understand, oh, yes, this one. Keep that in mind and, uh, as he's talking to them. Think about some of the things that he talked to them about because it started way back in Moses' writings, beginning with Moses. Moses wrote the first books of the Bible. The first breadcrumbs we find in Scripture happened back in Genesis. When the first sin happens and God comes and he gives them penalties for what had happened, and what does he say to Satan? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That is, the literal is seed there. But his offspring is what we would say today. They're what's going to come from you. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's just a hint. We really don't have a sense yet of what that means until we start seeing more promises given to Abram later on. But in Galatians 3.16... He explains it. Paul writes, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is a hint that someone is going to come. It's going to be the enemy of evil. Then we start seeing a better, more clear picture when God starts making promises to Abram. And he said, I will... Bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just Jews, this is everyone. Something, someone through your lineage is going to come. Uh, there's going to be a lot of history written. If you remember, Scripture isn't to be an exhaustive history. It is the story of salvation. So what we find is... What it keys on is throughout history, how does God bring salvation to mankind? And this is a clear that it's going to come through Abram. Um, it's, he's going to manipulate things in such a way that it becomes a distinct nation. A lot of our Old Testament that we're reading now, we're studying, like in Mike's class, how do we keep the lineage pure? Are you truly a Jew? Is this traceable? Can you prove it? That was all in purpose of being able to find this one that was going to come and be able to prove who he was. God's hand guides it throughout. Where's it going to come through? Well, there's 12 tribes there. But it's going to come through the tribe of Judah. These are very identifiable characteristics. A lot of times people will say, here is something that was given from way back when, and this is how we can interpret it, Nostradamus. Give something fuzzy. Then we can fit many scenarios into it. This is very, very distinct. You can't miss this one. This is more than what man could give. He would speak the works of God, and if a man doesn't listen to it, he's going to be held accountable to it. Moses is talking to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he says, and the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, this is one that was the leader of the people. He, like him, meant God told Moses what to give them. He gave it to them, and they needed to listen to it because it was the word of God. It wasn't the word of man. 
He was going to stand out and be distinct. He was going to raise a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And if you drop on down, he says, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Peter, in Acts chapter 3, when he is on talking on Solomon's portico, goes back and he quotes this, and he expounds on it. Moses said it back then. Here's the man who did it. Here's the man who fulfilled it. This is when it's fresh in their mind, whenever they could make that connection too. Everything he's talking to them. Remember what they had said? Don't you know what happened here? He is referring to things that would be fresh on their minds too. More distinct characteristic. He is going to be a son. The Lord is going to anoint him. Um, notice in this one in Psalms chapter 2, when he starts it, this is kind of interesting. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We are going to fight against God. We are going to stop what's happening here. Why do they do that? But notice in our context here that it is God's anointed one. And we drop down to verse 7. I will tell you a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. A son of God. An anointed one. One that was different from the other prophets is coming. Think through history. Who has fought against the plans of God? When God said, I'm going to do this, Pharaoh, this isn't the time that God had made the, the seed of Abraham into a distinct nation. What you have in effect is Pharaoh saying, I'm a nation. I got this. And he tells the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus, when you are delivering a baby, if it's a boy, you kill it. I'm going to stop this problem right here. This is the nation that's going to produce the Messiah. About 80 years later, this fellow named Moses comes back and confronts him. He's got a mission. God is going to bring his people out with a mighty outstretched arm. And the result is, destroyed the land, he destroyed the army, and he kills the Pharaoh. Haman, in the book of Esther... Israelites are under captivity. I hate these Jews. I'm going to put a stop to this. And he builds gallows for Mordecai. And he plots to annihilate the Jews. But within two days, he's dead. He's hung on his own gallows. And all his sons are dead. Fast forward to recent times to this. Caiaphas, I'm the high priest. I got this. John 11 records, he said, it's expedient that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Do you really think that one that came from God with this plan, that a group of men with swords and clubs could stop it after all the might and power that man had brought against it before and couldn't do it? Consider further what Jesus is talking to them. That the Messiah would be born of a virgin. This is 
physiologically impossible unless God says, I'm going to perform a miracle for this. He's going to conceive and bear a son. You will call his name Emmanuel. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's pretty specific for them. And I'm hurrying through some of these because I took the first lesson in a short time. <laughs> but catch the gist of this. This Messiah's first spiritual work is going to be in Galilee. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Galilee, Jordan, Galilee of the nations. These people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. This is back in Isaiah. Drop down to verse 6. For to us a child is born. This is how I'm going to send him into the world. I'm not going to send this great, glorious man. I'm going to send him in as a child. To us a son is given. Look at the descriptions here. The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do it. This great light coming specifically from Galilee, a child, a son, is going to have a rule that will not end. Notice how that fits in with the, with the uh, prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. And when God built this nation, it was not built by the men's of hands. There would be no end of it. The Messiah would perform miracles. This is uh, unique. There are people that through time, well, Muhammad, his followers two or three hundred years later said, oh, yeah, he performed miracles. But you don't see anything from the writings around that time. They made claims of it. Here's one who says hundreds of years before, he is going to perform miracles unquestioned miracles and when he did people didn't say well that's a sleight of hand that isn't real again very specific the Messiah would be hated without cause he had done nothing against anyone in any bad manner he had, he had, he had called out the hypocrites but he had done nothing but good and was kind and there were those who hated him for it. The light shines in darkness. The darkness hates it. He exposes them. Psalm chapter 69. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me and those who attack me with lies. What happened in his trial? We got guys talking about all these lies, and they can't get together on them. Finally, they get two to say one thing together. Okay, they're going to railroad him. All this stuff was known. He is going to be the cornerstone. That's what everything is built on, the stone that the builders rejected. And that's what he himself had described to the Jewish leaders, some of what made them so angry with him. He quotes this and says, I'm the one. They don't want to hear it. And Zechariah 
Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Now we're getting into things that's very recent and very public. The people had lined a road. They cut branches down. They laid them. The ruler said, why are you taking this? And he said, if I didn't take it, the stones themselves would cry out. These would have been things that they would have seen and known. There would have been no question about this. It would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He would be forsaken by his disciples. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that happened the night of his betrayal in Gethsemane. They all forsook him and fled. You look in Psalm chapter 22. And you start looking at what was described of the crucifixion experience. And at the time this was written, crucifixion didn't exist. All right. They did stoning then. First couple of verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Notice the feeling of despair there. Drop down to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. You know what he seemed like to the people when he's on the cross is a bad man coming to a bad end. That's what he's describing here. 7 and 8. All those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. What had that people seen the rulers saying? Exactly this. They're quoting this, and they don't even realize they're fulfilling it. The abuse, verses 12 and 13. Many bulls compass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. 14 and 15, the agony. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast, and my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. They lay me in the dust of death. An agony that you really can't, we can't really grasp. Verse 16 to 18, for dogs compass me, a company of evil dooters encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Remember now, this form of execution didn't exist when this was written. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. These are specifics that these guys cannot miss. All these things were done in public and meant to be in public. If you look at Isaiah, how bad he had been abused, who they had buried him with. And he was killed as though he were a transgressor. More specifics. And then he would be resurrected from the dead. 
This brings it home to the situation to them now. As he explains this, and, and this is just highlights. There's going to be, there are many, many more, but this, this basically highlights the things that Jesus was talking to them about. Uh, think of the time and the patience he took explaining it all. You know, I can imagine them slowing down as they're, they're talking, and he's going through all of this because there were many, many more of these as he's explaining all of these to them. Let's continue our reading in Luke. In verse 28, So they drew near to the village that they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened to them on the road and how he was known in the breaking of bread. So the question of this is, why did he spend that much time and that much effort on two nondescript people that we don't read anything else about? People don't know anything about. They weren't great men in scriptures that we find other deeds about or anything. But he took the time to explain to them so that they understood all of these things. Why did God make sure that Luke recorded it? Why did God make sure that it was preserved to be in my Bible and in your Bible? What lessons did he mean for us to take? Well, one reason may be to show us that even a nobody is important to God. That in his creation, he wants all to be saved. He made us in the image of God, the ability to reason, the capacity to love. Um, he made us with a purpose. He shows us his love and concern by giving us every good thing, as James tells us. He made us exceedingly great and precious promises, and he wants us to love him back. You know, how, how involved has he been with his creation? Uh, too much to tell briefly. He didn't create and forget it. I suggest to you that when he says that he puts our names in the book of life, that's a very personal thing. That means that you're important to him, that I'm important to him. It's very personal. Also personal. In him you also... In, in Ephesians 1, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Luke 12, 7, why even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. You know, sometimes we forget it in our anxiety and our fears. We let the world get to us. All of us are vulnerable to this. I know I am. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. We need to remember the grace of Christ. We need to remember that we are to live for him and not walk in our own selfish ways. That we can't pick and choose what we want to follow. The basis. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And that's still true today. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these hung all the principles of what was good and right. And still does. Still does. We're careful how we walk through this world. We pick our companions because we want to go to heaven. All of these show the reality that God loves us personal. So the question is, what do we do with it? If I fully understand or at least better understand how important I am to God, what am I going to do with it? Where are you in your life? That's the encouragement I wanted to give us today. What will you do with the knowledge? What will you do with this? Thank you for your attention.